coming to you from the studios at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we have microphones in our faces, and you're listening in. And this month, we welcome two guests. The first is on the phone with us. He's a civil rights era hero, Reverend C.T. Vivian, personal friend of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and lieutenant in the civil rights movement. Hello, Reverend Vivian. We are so happy to have you with us. Oh, good. Same here. Thank you for joining us, sir. And the second guest is in studio with us, Sam Fullwood III, who is a columnist at Think Progress with Center for American Progress, and he focuses on race, ethnicity, and the media. Welcome, Sam. So glad to have you with us. Lisa, I'm so happy to be here. I've asked these history-making freedom fighters to come and be a part of our time to reflect on the life, legacy, and lessons that they have learned from Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and their own leadership in the civil rights movement. And on this episode, in honor of Dr. King and the movement, I thought I'd share two spoken word pieces with you and with our guests We'd love to hear what you think of this topic. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and how he influenced you. So please drop us a line at podcast at freedomroad.us or tweet to us at freedomroadus. So my mother, Sherry Lawrence, she joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, at 17 years old. She helped establish this Philadelphia chapter in late 1965 and served till the office closed in 1967. I don't think you would have known her, Reverend Vivian, because she came in pretty late and she was based up in the north. But she told me to tell you hi. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. She's a sister in the movement anyway. Yes, that's right. That's right. Exactly. And she was so excited for this. She's absolutely going to be the first person who listens to this podcast. So she moved to New York City after the Philadelphia office closed. And on April 4th, 1968, she was living in an apartment with her boyfriend. And when she heard the news that day, Dr. King had been shot dead in Memphis. And yeah, she tells me that she needed comforting that night. And so that was actually the night that I was conceived. Mm. <laughs> so that is the, I mean, I'm serious. I came into the world on that day. So people ask, you know how people ask, where were you when? Well, that's where I was. I was literally, <laughs> that's where I was. I was in my mom's belly, literally. On that day, I came in on that day. I wanted to ask you, where were you? Actually, both. Where were you on the day that you heard that Dr. King had been assassinated? I was in an office on the other side of Chicago, and I was living uh, opposite, uh, and, and it, it takes a long time to get there. Mm -hmm. And uh, 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 we hadn't heard yet that Martin had been shot. So I uh, went out the door, didn't say a thing to my secretary, mm -hmm. except see you Monday, right, or mm -hmm. something of that nature. Uh, and out I went, and then the first announcement was that Martin had been shot. They 
did not say killed, they said shot. Okay. Almost the same thing to us, right? Yeah. So I was hurrying across town, trying my best to get there. Then every now and then there would be another announcement that Martin had been shot. Oh. And that caused all of us, I suppose, but uh, it caused me to hurry that much more. Mm-hmm. And I had already been uh, given a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was trying to avoid that again. Yeah. And, but it's hard to slow down under the circumstances that Martin is being shot. So when I did get there, however, we had just had a, a new house in Chicago. Mm. So I hurried up the stairs and uh, my wife said, just right out of the blue, she knew too. And uh, she said, mm. uh, are you going? And uh, oh, wow. that's simple. I really didn't answer with great noise. I just turned to toward the bedroom when I went up the steps. Uh-huh. Uh, she knew I was going. She was listening to the radio. I was getting packed. And then uh, as I was almost packed, a friend of ours that had quit his job in Birmingham and decided to come and bring his family to Chicago. He rushed in in the bedroom and he he said to me uh, are you going and Mm. I said yes he said wait for me Mm. and out the door he went and uh, I waited for him it wasn't long Mm -hmm. he came right back and he had packed but when we arrived the only thing that he had had in his bag was uh, the ties he had just thrown things in in the bag and and rushed back out. Had not properly packed. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And uh, off we went. We arrived in uh, at the airport. Uh, got our tickets. Got on the plane, and we had conversations with the people getting on the plane that were a part of the movement. Those wow. coming were a part of the movement. Were 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 coming in yeah. uh, to Chicago, right? We were concerned about talking to the people that were coming in from Memphis because uh, that would prepare us, right? By the time we got to uh, Memphis, it was dark, mm-hmm. very dark. We were driving uh, toward uh, the hotel. The two lights were coming at us. They stopped and told us to come on, get in. And so we just parked the car and got in the car. They were going out to where the casket was. Oh, wow. So we were sitting on each other's laps and everything. And we got there where everybody was. So, Reverend Vivian, I have a question. What time was it that you got to Memphis? It seemed like it was about 6, 30, 7 o'clock. It was dark. It was really dark. It could have been as late as they just got. Was the motel surrounded by police? Were you able to yeah. get to the actual motel well, to see the easily. site? In fact, uh, we wandered around mm. for for a while because we wanted to talk to people, right? Mm-hmm. And so we did. And then uh, after a while, we left it to uh, the officials of both uh, 
Memphis and SCLC's upper class. When you heard the news, I mean, obviously you dropped everything in Chicago and, and flew to Memphis. Sam, where were you? I was all of 11 years old. I remember seeing it on the news. It happened about uh, mm-hmm. during the news, and we always watched the news together as a family. Yeah. And they interrupted the normal news to say this because this was a national event and the local people wouldn't know anything about it. Wow. And it came as a real big shock. As an 11-year-old in the fifth grade, I didn't have the awareness of what was going on the same as the people around me did. What I learned many, many, many years later Mm -hmm. was that the neighborhood that I grew up in was filled with civil rights activists. As a kid, I had no idea. Mm. This was just Dr. Hawkins, who was a local civil rights activist who ran for governor of North Carolina in 1968. Mm -hmm. And he was just Dr. Hawkins. He was was the guy who lived up the street. And he had invited Dr. King back to Charlotte to help campaign for him. Also uh, in North Carolina, a state legislator named Mickey Michaud in Durham was Mm -hmm. running for state office. Mm -hmm. And between Dr. Hawkins and Mr. Michaud, and another neighbor of mine, Roe Motley, mm-hmm. all of them activists in the civil rights movement in Charlotte, mm-hmm. they all were had planned and had invited Dr. King to come to Charlotte. And Dr. King probably would have spent the night on my street. Wow. But instead, he said that he was going to postpone his trip to Charlotte to go to Memphis because he wanted to do. Um, That's right. The, the, sanitation, the, bus, workers. the sanitation workers strike. Mm-hmm. As the story was told to me many, many years later. Dr. King had a cold and he wasn't feeling at his best at the moment. Mm -hmm. And they were saying, well, Rev, you need to come and sort of nurse the cold because you're going to be speaking. You're going to be out. You're going to be marching. You need to be at at full strength. Mm -hmm. And he says, no, I've got to go to Memphis because I've got to do this. But I promise as soon as I get through with that, I'll come to Charlotte. And he would have come to my street. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Something of the same uh, happened in another direction. The next morning, Coretta, she was coming in from Chicago, and we uh, just surrounded the place, and everybody, even close to Memphis, that was a part of the movement, or new movement people, were out and around the plane. Mm -hmm. Uh, We didn't get on the plane. We stood there and watched the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Coretta came and, uh, uh, and put her head out the window mm. near the pilot, and it, she just kept looking out and stepping down a step or two, and the body was being lifted toward oh, her. Wow. And it's a feeling and an understanding that that I will never forget. He was being lifted toward the open space, and she was putting her head out the window. Wow. Uh, it looked like that she was being lifted toward him, and it looked as though that she might even kiss him. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's a little... That's a little much, but the idea you felt the need for them to be close to each other yeah. and 
that afternoon, uh, because I still had the car from the night before, I started driving around because uh, the feeling was that uh, you wanted to go over. Well, I know I did. And uh, I, I went over into that hotel. Uh, you wanted to see as much as you could. Yeah. And the hotel room was empty. But I went over to look out the window to see if I'd had a rifle, what it would be like to be uh, shooting from that window. From his window, you had to get down on your knees. And you could see Martin coming down the steps. Right. Because Martin was going to go to his dinner. Right. To a dinner being prepared for Martin. Right. You know... I've actually been to the Lorraine Motel just recently. I was there with the um, representative John Lewis pilgrimage that he takes every year for people on, on Capitol Hill and, and other, other folks who are invited. And I happened to be invited this year. And we were standing in that parking lot looking at the wreath that I believe is still there. And of course, you go into the motel now, it's the National Civil Rights Museum. And the whole journey takes you to uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s room. And you can look out from that balcony and you can see where James Earl Ray shot him. It's literally a clear shot and it's right across the street. And in fact, you can even, just like you did that night, you can go into where they've actually, they've now set up the room the way that it was then and see, you can look out exactly as you did. And, you know, the very first time that I ever went to the National Civil Rights Museum was in 2003. I took a pilgrimage. And on that pilgrimage, we did two weeks on the Cherokee Trail of Tears uh, for the first two weeks, and then two weeks through the African experience in America, from slavery to civil rights. And the Civil Rights Museum was one of our stops. I remember when we got off the bus and literally just, just walking towards the motel, you knew you were standing on sacred ground. That's right. Oh. Uh, you could feel it. Yes. The next morning, all right, mm-hmm. so you're talking about the next day. Yeah. And, and the next morning, walking up those steps to the room where he had been, we heard that, that there was a black guy mm. who was on the police force. And the police station was right up the hill, just not very far. But he was not there that day. Yeah. A strange kind of thing. I mean, uh, that they had let him go home. There are a lot of conspiracy theories that I've heard. And actually, that I saw an amazing TV series that came on in the 1990s, I believe. And, and it really drew a good case for how this is probably not just a lone person. James Earl Ray was not just acting on his own, but was probably put up to this by government forces or by police forces or something. And it's interesting to hear your take on it, or especially to hear maybe even how people were thinking about it back then. I want to actually take a break and... I'd like to share a poem that I wrote that was inspired by literally the moment that I got off that bus and saw the Lorraine Motel, and I hope it's a blessing. As I walk toward the balcony where my hero fell, I feel strangely drawn in and wrapped by invisible hands of comfort and welcome, hands that welcome the peacemakers of the world. Come, 
and witnessed the place where a fellow peacemaker fell and inherited the kingdom of God. At once, when I look up to the barren balcony, I see the hollow stillness, empty peace today and running feet bounding upstairs in yesteryear. In the same breath, I see the lone wreath that hangs from this clean, white balcony railing and the fingers of Abernathy and Young pointing over the blood-stained railing, confused, angry, powerless, angry, powerless. They point to no one. In the same instant, I see white flowers on the railing and red blood dripping from the balcony floor, peace and confusion and the end of a movement, peace and confusion and the end of an era, peace and confusion and the end of a life. And that life was not only the doctors, it was the innocent life of a country shot down on a balcony in Memphis. That country now well acquainted with disillusionment, now well acquainted with grief and the sudden death of prophets. WWJD, what did Jesus do that day on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel? Jesus, well acquainted with the grief of sudden death, wept. You're listening to the Freedom Road Podcast where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is uniting tens of thousands of people across the country to challenge the evils of systemic racism, poverty, the war economy, ecological devastation, and the nation's distorted morality. Will you step up and join our efforts? If you're ready to join our movement to transform the political, economic, and moral structures of our country, text MORAL, M-O-R-A-L, to 90975, or visit poorpeoplescampaign.org to get involved. Again, that's MORAL, M-O-R-A-L, to 90975, or visit poorpeoplescampaign.org. Reverend Vivian, for your thoughts and reflections, for going there with us. And thank you, Sam. Oh, happy to be here with you. This has been a really moving experience. It has. Yeah. It's, it's very rare, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I've never heard most of this. I've never heard before. So Reverend Vivian, we're going to transition now. And I want to actually talk with you. I was looking at your bio online and I saw that you did your first sit-in in 1947. Yeah. That was news to me. I didn't even know that they were doing sit-ins that early. Oh, well, you see, that was the point. Actually, we were in Peoria, Illinois, and nobody even knew that Peoria, Illinois ever had any more. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the point being is that we had not only had a movement, huh. the Caterpillar Tractor Company had to uh, give us jobs. How about that? You were sitting in in order uh, to get uh, more yeah, jobs. That's right. 
Exactly. Did you enter the movement? We had the movement before the movement. <laughs> yes. That, um, yes. Uh, these were very, very important things. Were you at all influenced by Mahatma Gandhi's nonviolence well, movement? We're going. I, I got a book by him right here near me here. But the idea was that we already had an organization for nonviolence. Mm. What was it called? Uh, we didn't have a name. Oh, for... <laughs> it was more like a network. <laughs> yeah, there was no network then, see. But in Peoria, we were living there. Uh-huh. And we had an organization, a nonviolent organization. Mm-hmm. We tried our best to get Caterpillar Tractor to give us jobs. They did not, in fact, give us jobs. Yeah. The head of the NAACP, he definitely wanted to go from his job of a janitor in one of the stores, and he had called the head of Caterpillar Tractor. You see, that was a major spot. So here was a fellow that was in charge of a Caterpillar Tractor, and the head of NAACP, who was our man, was putting his hand in to clean up the place and keep it clean, right? I see. In fact, the pastor of the Methodist Church had just built a new church. He and his wife had gone to a conference, and they came up over a hill and were killed. Wow. You know, there's more things like this than one would think. Yeah. Uh, how would it be that almost everything moved about the same time? You were appointed by Dr. King in 1961 as director of affiliates for the Southern Christian Leadership Council, SCLC. Quite honestly, a lot of the history has been fleshed out recently by really great films. So the film Selma, we now understand what happened in Selma in a a deeper, more rich way because we've now seen the film, right? I was looking at your bio and I've known you for years, but looking at your bio, you helped lead the battle in Selma and then also in Birmingham him. And these are the things that gave us, these are the battles that gave us the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65. But while I was on that pilgrimage with Representative John Lewis, I realized for the first time that every city was a battleground in a real war. Like, it really was a war. Once it started, yeah, the important thing was nonviolence became a reality. That Okay, so talk to us about that. How is it that you could literally walk onto a street where you know that the opponent is thinking of this like really literally a continuation of the Civil War and they are there to kill. They do not hesitate to kill. And you are committed to nonviolence. How did you do that? We really we need to know when you're going out onto the street. How is it that you thought of the struggle? Did you did you think of it like a war? No, you thought about it just like Gandhi thought about it, that this was a means whereby men would be freed. This is a way that what you did had no violence in it. 
what we all need to know, and mm-hmm. most of them were uh, ministers. See, see, this is the thing that you only know when you really get serious about Gandhi. Gandhi spent 14 years in jail. Did you know that? I didn't know that, actually. You, yeah. you, you, see, yeah. you see what I mean? I mean, uh, and, uh, you put all of the times he was in jail together. It was years. I mean, he, he was uh, uh, the movement in India was moving all the time. So you all looked at it as a generational or multi-generational type of a movement, not something that you protest and you automatically get change? Well, not automatically. Every now and then, remember, the various ministers and so forth that went there would come back with stories and it would pass up and down the church followers. And it was not an accident that Martin King had already started stuff at his university. And that's when I first met Martin. It's not an accident that everything in our movement started in, in those churches uh, right across the country. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, that's how SCLC was the organization because it was a church organization. One of the things that I hear people say now quite frequently is the and, and Dr. King even talked about the urgency of now yeah. uh, and the demand that not for gradualism in, in terms of change. And hearing you talk about, you know, Gandhi's 14 years in jail, I'm thinking of Mandela spending a quarter of a century in jail. Yeah. The, the idea of a movement not being something that you do and then you immediately are able to see the fruits of that. And I'm just curious to know your thought about that, because I think this is really pertinent today, Mm -hmm. because so many people have seen and maybe studied a little bit of history, and they feel that, you know, you have a march and then things are supposed to be different, or you have an election and things are supposed to immediately be different. That's the point. Very few read very little. (laughs) Very few uh, really knew what it was like. I mean, remember, India is a long way from here. We wouldn't have known there was a Gandhi (laughs) if he hadn't been in school in England. Now, here he was, they control India, Mm -hmm. and they put him off the train because he sat in the wrong, quote-unquote, seats. And here comes the man that is to freedom. It's a... a, is to free the nations. Actually, he would have been a Christian. He talks about it. Uh, he said he liked uh, Jesus, but he didn't like those Christians because they don't—they're yeah, they're not anything like. They were, yeah, they're it. nothing like him. They're nothing like the Jesus that, they follow. Right. I get fact, that. In fact, even worse than that. But that, that's no, that's bad enough. Yeah. <laughs> but, but but what I mean is that he said at one point that he would have been a Christian if he had been treated right. Wow. Well, it strikes me, Reverend Vivian, that you spent time in prison, too. You were in Parchman Prison and actually were badly beaten there. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people know a lot about Parchman. Can you share a little bit with us about Parchman? Parchman was supposed to be the worst jail in the nation because it was the, the worst in Mississippi. And the movement had already started. Right. Was it? In fact, uh, Nashville's people 
went to be arrested. I heard that they actually, the goal was to fill Parchman Prison with protesters. Well, that, that, was, that was the conversation. But uh, the point is, we talked about filling jails, period, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, since you had this going, why not make that be the great starting place uh, that, that we could go everywhere else, right? I see. I, I was beaten, but, but I wasn't treated nearly as badly as uh, what they really did to average people. Now, one of the things that I learned about Parchman Prison is that it actually started because a, a Southern white man bought a bunch of land at the turn of the century, I thought that it was a former plantation, but it wasn't. He bought it as a plantation in the new South, you know, per se, the 20th century South, in order to get people to work that land in the same way that they did back at the antebellum period for near free as a prison. So for prison labor, because we all know that the 13th Amendment did not actually end slavery completely. It actually just gave permission for the government to enslave people through imprisoning them. So I thought it was quite an interesting strategy. It is. In fact, let me tell you, for Mississippi people, uh, it didn't matter that the Civil War was over. Okay. They worked people to death just like they had done all the time. They lost the war, but they took over the land. That's, That's exactly right. And parchment is a symbol of that. That's it. It's a great symbol of it because people believe that Nobody was treated worse than in that jail. In fact, one of the things that I learned about Parchman was that, was it, is it true nobody has ever re- escaped from Parchman prison? And at that time, they didn't even have walls. They had no walls, and nobody had ever escaped alive because they would shoot well, somebody oh, dead. I, yeah, or that was, killing black people, whether you're in jail or not, is a secondary thing in Mississippi. It was, and it's almost that way in the middle of the movement. Mm. In fact, Fannie Lee Hammer. Now, let me tell you, they beat her in a jail and they they just, because she was who she was. Because she tried to vote. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. They beat her. I mean, beat her. I was in the same jail, but I wasn't even close to that. I I got a beating outside of the jail, but uh, not in the worst jail, right? Sure. But nothing like what Yeah, Fannie Lou Hamer, when they beat her, I read read about this, that her body actually, in order to defend itself against the beating, stiffened up and got almost like rock hard so she could barely move. Well, I I don't know about hard, but I know that she was puffed up. Yeah, exactly. She was she was swollen, bruised, yeah. and her body hardened. Really, I think because it was preparing for death in the same way that rigor mortis happens. I, I imagine. I mean, it was she was near death. They beat her nearly to death. Yeah, that's exactly right. Bringing the movement to your ears from coast to coast and around the globe. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. 
In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. us understand the state of civil rights today. So Sam, what is the current status of black America, people of color concerning civil rights, voting rights and poverty in America today? Lisa, that is a huge question. Well, I know there's like there's actually whole museums and <laughs> libraries, that, yeah, libraries. Yeah, it's written about. Yes. Actually, yeah. Uh, let me let me take a couple of stabs at it. First off, I should say it's kind of difficult to talk about the state of black America today, particularly following the history lesson that we just had from Reverend Vivian. We sure did. And I personally get kind of frustrated Mm. with the temporal misunderstanding of so many people Mm. about race relations today. Okay. And someone once told me, you can't talk to people in America about race without first having at least 10 hours of history for every 10 minutes that you talk to them about it. <laughs> that is so oh, good. Great. That is so good, is right. <laughs> and, and so to sort of talk about today, you really did need to know a little bit about how did we get to today. That's exactly right. I had an epiphany. I had a personal epiphany on race. I have, I've had several in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. But I had one in particular studying Dr. King mm-hmm. at uh, Harvard. Preston Mitchell, I think his name is, but he taught a course on Dr. King at Harvard in the Divinity School. That's what every intelligent person should get, so that when they go through whatever they do, they will understand who they really are and what they're really about. Well, it was sitting in in this class Mm -hmm. that uh, maybe I was daydreaming, but it struck me listening to him talk about Dr. King as a black man. And this was back in 1990s. As a black man, my life was better in the mid-1990s than almost any human being that has ever lived on the face of the earth. That if you live in a country where you're healthy, you're educated, you're employed, which was the situation for me, and you have an opportunity to travel around the world and you see places where For most of our history on this earth, human beings have struggled just to survive from day to day. Right. And so in sort of looking at it over the span of time, I came up with something that I sort of call an opportunity or an expectation gap. That if you look at 50 years ago or 100 years ago in the United States, the plight of black people was so much worse than it is now. It's not great on every indices now. But what we expected... And and you're right. It was so much worse then. And if you're talking about slavery itself, five times... Exactly. That's exactly the point that I'm getting at. But 50 years ago, in 1968, we had a belief that things were getting better. But let me just say, we we thought things were getting better, but... 
1959, 55% of African-Americans were living below the poverty line. That's like, it. That blows my mind. We thought things were getting better. Right. And right. 55% well, they, they of us better. were it living under not- the poverty line. Yes. Yeah. That says a lot about how it used to be. That's exactly my point. Yeah. And that you, you go out 50 years from 68, but I get really frustrated when people say, well, things have not changed. Mm-hmm. A whole lot of things have changed and a whole lot of things have changed for the better. It's just that they haven't changed to the degree that we had thought that they would at well, some point exactly in the past. Right in the time zone. But slavery itself, mm-hmm. you can't compare slavery to any of it. Yeah. I mean, right. think about that. Right. What percentage of people of African descent were enslaved, um, yeah. you know, pre-Civil War? Do you know that percentage? Whether I don't was, know the percentage, but I wish I did. And I probably, think you have it. It's probably at least 80 percent. Oh, oh, easily 80 to 90 percent. And relatively the, few were, were not yeah. enslaved. Every slave was poor because every slave, <laughs> oh, well, that, you know. Exactly. Right. Had no money of their own. Right. Really. Well, they had no humanity. There's, no, there's a yeah. difference between being poor. Recognition of their humanity. And there was, they were not eligible to be poor. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were not viewed as worthy of, wow. of humanity. Of poverty. And yeah, they, they were really not conceived. In fact, we got churches uh, right today mm-hmm. that have a hard time seeing that black people who come in and sit in their seats is we are really human. Right. So to bring it back to the present, when we talk about some of the dire circumstances, and I don't mean to sugarcoat or to demean the fact that disparities and racism continue to plague our society, and they should be resisted and fought with every ounce of everybody's humanity today, the disparities continue. And they are real. And almost every measure of well-being in this country, people of African descent are at or near the bottom or are at a disadvantage to majoritarian white Anglo-Saxon cultural people. Mm -hmm. And that being said, you have both the good and the bad, the best of times and the worst of times in the sense that people tend to want to really focus most of their energies on what's bad without having some commensurate awareness of just how far we have come. Yeah. I draw a great deal of strength myself from understanding the history and that mm-hmm. anyone who understands Gandhi or the struggle against apartheid or the, mm-hmm. the struggles yeah. that you've seen in this country against racism, mm-hmm. the fact that we exist, that South Africans exist, that people of the African diaspora exist and thrive to the extent that they do, mm-hmm that they overcame slavery ought to be ennobling and empowering and a reason to make you want to continue on. You asked the question a little bit earlier about going into the streets and knowing that, you know, you may be harmed. If you know your history, you are empowered to be able to do that. And you know that you're doing it for a cause that is greater than your momentary comfort. Exactly. And I wonder if that's actually what people in the civil rights movement and era held with them. Because I'll tell you, I mean, I, I faced that moment and I I almost faltered. I almost did not go out on that street. But it was really the depth of the faith that I prepared up to that moment that literally gave me the inside, the core to be able to step onto the street and with every step declared right now I'm stepping forward and it's an act of love. Right. So, well, at least not everybody's a freedom fighter. No. And not everybody ought to be. 
I read Isabel Wilkerson's marvelous book, The Ones of Other Sinners. That's the book I like. Yes. She makes the point that during the Great Migration, there was a struggle among communities of African-Americans in the South. Mm -hmm. Should we go or should we stay? Should we go and improve our personal lot or our family's lot and then bring them along? Or should we stay here and struggle against it? Go north or stay in the South. Or stay in the South. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, should we stay in the South simply because it's just more comfortable? Mm -hmm. We don't know what's going to be in the other place. I uh, left the South when I was six years old. My parents took me out when I was ready to go to school. They uh, did the best they could for me until then. They left Missouri and uh, came over to the first non-segregated state. And so I was moved from Missouri to Illinois. And there I could go to school and know that I could learn to read and write. You didn't know that in the South. Wow, that's so deep. There's not even, wow. Yes. The, The point was that a lot of people did not leave and chose to make their stand for good or ill in in the South. I hear that, and I don't understand it at all, Mm. because I know that at one time, in one of the states, the richest man in the South was black. They shot him. The situation in the South was varied, and I think that we tend to have, often to have a very one-dimensional view of what life in the South was like in the worst of times. And even to this day, I think there is a a stigma attached to being Black and in the South. There is this sort of notion that that all of the, the good people, all of the people who had ambition left, which was not the case at all. And but, that, but just recently, it took a great number of years before before it changed. I can see the houses when I was six years old. And uh, and I saw the kinds of life you had to live. And I saw even the farms that you were on. You worked much harder than uh, than the white boys. Well, I think there's a reason why 7 million people of African descent flooded north and also west to California. That's it. You know, during the Great Migration because it was they were fleeing terror. Yes, I mean, flat right. out terror. But, but the thing that really strikes me is that those who, who stay behind, they're the ones who carried the movement. Like, they're the ones who actually ended up changing the world. That, that, so, that was the point that I was yeah. going to make. And of those 7 million who left, far more stayed. Yeah. And it's, it's really amazing. So it's, it is an amazing. And, and understanding that history mm-hmm. helps us understand why now social change, such as it is taking place in this country, the progress that's going to take place in this country is probably going to be in the South first, mm. both politically and economically and socially. Uh, 60 years ago and 50 years ago, the South was not what it is today. The social changes wrought by the civil rights movement, I believe, had yeah. greater impact in the South than they did anywhere else in the country. Oh, of course. That's, and it was meant to. I mean, mm-hmm. because the greater the need was there. That, that did it. And what we saw shortly, oh, I guess maybe about a generation after Dr. King's assassination, was the beginning of the reverse migration back into the South. People have moved back to Atlanta 
to Birmingham, to Memphis, to my hometown, Charlotte, and Nashville, Little Rock. I was speaking to a woman just the other night who was talking about living in Little Rock, such that those places are presenting opportunities, both economically and politically, in ways that Newark and Detroit and even Chicago are not presenting. So, Sam, let me ask you this. So right now, when Dr. King was assassinated, he was in the middle of mounting the Poor People's Campaign in Washington, D.C., and helping the sanitation workers in Memphis. And, of course, that's what brought him there. We talked about that earlier. Um, Well, now Reverend Dr. William Barber and Liz Theo Harris are mounting the new Poor People's Campaign right now. And why do we need, if things are so much better, why do we need a Poor People's Campaign right now? Let me be clear. We need a poor people's campaign because things are not as good as they should be. Well, and okay. to, in order to make those things happen, to, uh-huh. to, to close that opportunity gap, gap that I was talking about, yeah. you've got to have poor people. You've got to have people of color. You've got to have gay and lesbian people. You have to have the whole panoply mm-hmm. of humanity engaged in transforming our country. So where are the top three places where you find that gap right now? What does that gap look like? I think economics is one of the big pieces. And I think allied with economics. What does that look like in economics? Give us some numbers. Do you you have a sense of? Well, I think that when we look at unemployment for African-Americans, even in this particularly good moment, Mm -hmm. is twice the number for white Americans. It's 7%. It's 7% unemployment, which is a really good number. It is twice the number of three and a half percent for white Americans. Okay. That's the gap. So we're talking about disparity. We're talking about disparity. We're talking about politics, the opportunity for people of color to be able to vote easily and unfettered. Mm-hmm. Doesn't exist to the extent that it can. Now, That's 50 right. years ago or 75 years ago, African-Americans could not vote at all or, right. or would not vote, were not permitted to vote. They are permitted, but they're restricted. But they're hindered. And they're hindered. Yeah. That is the opportunity gap. And okay. so in order to sort of close those remaining vestiges of institutionalized racism and oppression, mm-hmm. you do need a Reverend Barber-led movement mm-hmm. to be able to activate people. I think that what really we're talking about at the bottom is a struggle for the soul of the country in terms of whether we're going to include people or whether we're going to try to recreate some sort of newfangled, oppressive, segregated society that holds on to a notion of white superiority that that we sort of moved away from, Mm -hmm. but want to sort of now recapture as making America great. Yes. The the idea of bringing back something that we now know is discredited. But there's a nostalgia, I think, in the psyche of some Americans, mm-hmm. my Caucasian friends and co-workers and colleagues in politics, that that this isn't right. That mm-hmm. that really what we need to do is to sort of re- regain some sort of order to how things should be. Wow. And that order of the past is the better order. And I think that that's really that's what, what that's we what hear. Think. That's what we hear anytime we hear Make conservatives and, and the administration Talk about what they're trying to transform. And that's what you see in their policies. That's what you see in the policy that does away with literally every gain or trying to deal with all of the gains of the Obama era. There's another piece of this that I think we really need to be cognizant of, which is at its core, the United States is transforming and it is becoming, I like to say, a small D democratic 
nation. That is democracy in the, in the Jeffersonian model. But it is going to be practiced increasingly by people of color. Mm-hmm. And that is a terrifying thought to notions of white superiority. And so what we're really looking at is a struggle for will the country allow its democratic notions to survive when white superiority isn't governing that democracy? Yeah. And I think that that's the, that's a really part of what we're talking about. That's awesome. Reverend Vivian, we're going to wrap up and I want to ask you, if you were leading the movement today, what would you say would be your core strategy? What lessons did you learn about how to change the world through Dr. King's leadership that organizers today need to understand? Well, one of the things that's so important to understand is we have to have it so that no white man thinks of himself as better than black people. That would be the easiest one to do. Doesn't that feel easy? It's like, come on, people. You know, think about it. We're all human. I mean, look, this is in, this is, this goes back to Shakespeare, you know, do I not bleed red like everybody else, right? No, but I mean, but that's it. The mere fact that you even have to think about not being able to go to a certain town, certain block that you can't have certain jobs. And so you go clear across the country. That alone is a tremendous thing so that you know that certain other things are are on your side, at least that you've got a better chance of living a decent life. Reverend Vivian, what scripture carried you through your work more than any other scripture? Oh, to me, it's Jesus in the New Testament. Mm. The rest of it is conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I love that. In fact, Jesus is the only one that makes good sense. And we we, uh, uh, treat him badly, (laughs) loving one another as I have loved you. Ah, yes. Uh, 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 And we haven't reached it yet. Well, I would like to share with you as a way of saying thank you and also with you, Sam, and with our listeners, another poem. I promised you two. So here's my second and we'll close with this. This is called Visions of the Possible. And again, it was inspired by that same pilgrimage that I took back in 2003. And Reverend Vivian, you are actually in this poem. So it's I'm excited to share it with you. And you are. I I wrote you in. (laughs) But it's, it's a way for me to say thank you. I'm crying now, not out of sadness, but profound gratefulness. Thank you, saints of the movement who died so that I could stand in line and vote. I want to thank the saints who marched holes in their shoes so that I could teach in any school and sit anywhere I want and go to any school and live in any home in any part of town. I want to thank you. Thank you, Ed King. Thank you, Dave Dennis. 
Thank you, James Meredith. Yeah. And yeah. Fannie Lou Hamer and Annie Devine. Thank you, Daisy Bates, for organizing the nine little ones. And thank you, Elizabeth Eckford, for mustering the courage to walk through that jeering crowd that exposed the face of hate in America. Thank you, Diane Nash and Dory and Joyce Ladner and Ruby Sales and Charles McLaurin and C.T. Vivian. And thank you, Mom, for standing up to injustice. Thank you, Mom. I like that. For looking it in the face and speaking truth in love to power. And thank you, James Cheney and Andrew Goodman and Mickey Schwerner. You gave your lives. You gave your lives. Your very lives for me. We gained our lives. Yes. So that we could share it with you. Ah, and thank you, Ella Baker. Thank you, Rosa Parks. Oh, Ella Baker, right. Your acts of agape love toward me and your neighbor have borne fruit that will not die. You sat down and looked broken shalom and screaming face and said, no. No to the absence of the kingdom. No to the broken state of shalom. No to neighbor beating down neighbor. No, you simply said no. And you ignited the kingdom's revolution, the restoration of a peace of shalom. Dear saints, your examples are hard to follow. For none of you operating in the power of limited human flesh, Dr. King, you reached high to the sky and locked hands with God. And God carried you. She carried you through jeering crowds and burning crosses, through bombed churches and dark Mississippi roads, haunted with the shadows of night riders and crooked sheriffs. He carried you through the valley of the shadow of death. And you did not fear evil. And that was your strength. You walked until you died. You walked until you could live again. And the God of Moses held your hand and you held tightly to your dignity. Your love, O saints, is from God. I do not understand it. I do not understand it. I don't understand it, yet I know. To walk in shalom is to walk with your kind of love. For my brother and neighbor and enemy thank you thank you thank you for holding on to god's hand and showing us visions of the possible amen oh thank you sir i will send a copy and and thank you for being on the broadcast today These are conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is Freedom Road Podcast. for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. And Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.com. 
us. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop on the first day of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.